that's what we're going to be looking at today. And then also he's going to stand before Pilate and condemned for crucifixion. And so uh, this morning, chapter 14, verse 66, as we'll begin reading. And of course, last week, as we opened up chapter 14, we saw that Jesus, he would be with his disciples in that upper room. And he was uh, celebrating Passover with them. And he would institute the Lord's Supper, uh, as he would say, that take eat, take the bread and uh, eat. This is my body broken for you. And then the cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink as my blood is shed for the forgiveness of sin. And so then he would also begin to talk to the disciples. They knew that something heavy was happening. He'd been talking about his death, his pending death, that he would be handed over to the chief priests and the elders, and then he would be crucified, but he would rise again after three days. And the disciples are still confused in that upper room. This is only a few hours before his crucifixion. And Jesus is saying that one of you is going to deny me, that is you specifically, Peter. One of you is going to betray me, and that was Judas. And all of you are going to be made to scatter and run away. And so Jesus said, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep shall scatter. And so they would make their way from that upper room. They would travel across Jerusalem to the hillside called Mount of Olives. And there on the base of that mount was a garden called Gethsemane. And there we saw that Jesus began to pray to the Father. And let's us pray as we just continue talking about Mark's narrative and reading it together. Father, we ask that right now that you would just bless our hearts as we study this text that indeed is, um, Lord, we can lose its meaning because we know it so well. We know the, the trial that Jesus went on. We've read it. We know the events that took place. But Lord, we also know that um, as we read it once again, that you desire to touch us deeply. And Lord, that we would um, just appreciate it even more and rejoice this morning because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in allowing his body to be broken and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin. That Lord, that we have reason to meet here this morning. And that is coming together as believers and belonging to you because of what Jesus Christ has done. And then Hebrew declares that we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus. And we are in your presence right now, and we desire for you to touch us deeply as we continue reading here this text and applying it in our lives and, Lord, being reminded of the cross. And so bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus in that garden, as he went to the garden, knowing that he's about ready to be arrested, knowing that he's going to be taken on the sufferings of the cross, he was very much, uh, his soul uh, was in trouble. Even unto death, he would uh, say to his disciples. And so he would pray to the Father, and he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus submitting to the Father that he would go to Calvary to die for the sins of the world. And in that garden, we saw that as they came and arrested Jesus, it was Jesus that said, Indeed, I will drink of the cup that the Father has given me to drink. That is the cup of suffering and death. He would be bound up. He would be taken back to Jerusalem. And he would go before the high priest Caiaphas, where Jesus stood in the midst of that religious council called the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish Supreme Court. And we know that the high priest would ask Jesus, as we ended last week, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered in verse 62, I am. I am the Christ, the anointed one. 
I am the Son of God. And, and again, we know from Matthew's account that Jesus was under a solemn oath to tell the truth. And of course, he is truth. He's not a truth. The Bible declares that God is truth. God is light. God is love. And Jesus, in that upper room, would say to his disciples that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then appropriately, right after that, he would say, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. If you want to know the Father, then look at me, know me. I am truth, just as God is truth. And so here he is, truth. I am the Christ, the anointed one. I'm the son of God. And he's under oath. And when he said that, he would go on to say to the high priest that you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at that moment, the high priest, Caiaphas, was very furious. He became unglued and he stood up and he tore his clothes and said, why do we need any further witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And we see that the sufferings of Christ really begin to intensify at that time. As Mark here tells us, upon the passing of that verdict, that all that restraint that had been upon those priests and those scribes and elders seemed to all of a sudden be lifted. And again, they committed an illegal act and all of their bottled up hatred and malice and wrath and envy and jealousy that they have had for Jesus for about three years, they came together and all of that hatred began to be poured out on Jesus as they abused and beat Jesus. They began to spit on him, which is the ultimate form of insult. They spat on him. They began to beat him, and they would punch him, a fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, as the prophet would write in the Old Testament concerning the suffering Messiah. And they covered his face and began to buffet him, and that is hit him with a clenched fist. They covered his face. He couldn't see where the punches were coming from, and that would do some real damage to Jesus. You see, if his face had not been covered, then he could kind of go with the blows. But because his face was covered, not only were they mocking him and saying, you know, say who's hitting you, prophesy who is hitting you, but they were doing it to do some real damage as well. Because he couldn't see the hits that were coming. It's kind of like my son, Luke, he started football camp, and, and here in a few weeks, in the middle of August, they're going to start football, and I love to watch the high school football games that, that he plays in. And once in a while, as a dad, I'll go down on the sidelines, and I'll kind of watch the game, and you're right there. And when those kids hit, sometimes I think, ooh, you know, the helmets are smacking and the shoulder pads, and there's a lot of noise. And sometimes I think, how can they just get up? Those kids just kind of pop up, and four quarters, they're there hitting each other and hitting each other hard. And the reason that they're able to do that is because they can kind of go with the tackle. They, they see that person coming with the hit. They've learned techniques about blocking and, and tackling and all these other things. So that protects them as well. But when they can really get hurt is when they get blindsided. When they don't see the hit that is coming. And they get hit and they're not able to cushion themselves and not able to roll with the hit. And that's when they can get hurt at those times. And so here, in order that they might really hurt Jesus, they covered his face, not only mocking him, but to hurt him. And they're hitting him with their fist. He's not able to see the blows coming. He wasn't able to move with it. And so they really hurt Jesus. And we know that the Romans beat him as well. And they really beat him. 
Matter of fact, Isaiah says they pulled out his beard. And so the suffering Messiah, is, his face was so marred that you couldn't even recognize who he was. His face so swollen and bruised and bloody. Now there's an interesting note in this. When you go to John's Gospel, you know that Jesus first went to Annas. Jesus went through a series of six trials. He was bound up there in the garden. And we know that John tells us that first he went to Annas, the high priest. Now, Annas was not the official high priest. We've talked about this in our previous studies, how Annas was really the powerhouse behind the high priest office. You see, when the Romans came in and they took over that area and took over Jerusalem, they wanted to be able to work with the leaders of the land. And, of course, being in Israel, being in Jerusalem, the leader was the high priest. And so the Romans came in and they said, listen, we want a high priest that we can work with, that sympathizes with us, that will appease us, and we don't care about spiritual qualifications. We don't care if he's a godly man, if he's a man of the word, he's a man of the law. We don't care if he's even a descendant of Aaron. All we care about is he's going to work with us, and while we're at it, we're going to give it to the highest bidder. So Annas was the one that was able to buy off the high priestly office, and the Romans also put in another rule, and that was that the high priest could only rule for two years, no longer than that, so that he wouldn't be able to just have absolute power. And you see, according to the Old Testament, the qualifications of the high priest were completely different than what the Romans had said they wanted as a high priest. And so two years, Annas was a high priest. But what he did was, is that he continued to buy off the high priestly office. He was the one that was the head and setting up and overseeing all of the sacrifices that were being sold there at the temple and the exchange of money. You recall that earlier in the week that Jesus came into the temple, he overturned the money changers' tables, he drove out those who bought and sold and those sacrifices, the sheep and the oxen and the doves, and he re would rebuke those religious leaders by saying that my father's house, which is a house of prayer, you've made it into a den of thieves. And Annas oversaw all that. He was getting very rich from all of that, and he was able to continue to buy the high priestly office and give it to his sons and his son-in-laws. So that's why there's a little bit of confusion with people when they read the gospel narratives. Is it Annas that's the high priest? But then it says that it's Caiaphas, that he's the official high priest. Caiaphas was the official high priest, but Annas was the one that was the power behind the high priestly office. And so naturally Jesus went to Annas first because Annas was upset at Jesus. And Annas was furious with Jesus and wanted to see him condemned to death. And it's interesting, as you look at that narrative, it says that the officer, the high priest that was there with Annas, came along and, and struck Jesus. He was the first one to hit Jesus. Now the question is, who was the officer of the high priest? Well, if you do a little digging, there's some early church references that have suggested that it was Malchus. You remember Malchus? We talked about him last week for those of you who are here. He's the one that Peter cut off his right ear when they arrested Jesus there in the garden. And Malchus was the one that was experiencing the wrath of Peter's sword that he pulled out and began to swing it. And he got Malchus's ear. And we saw last week that Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. And Jesus put Malchus's ear back on his head and healed his ear. And is it possible? Could it be? The scripture doesn't say. But the one who received healing from Jesus, help from Jesus, would be a short time later would begin to beat on Jesus. Pretty incredible, isn't it? If indeed it was Malchus. 
So Jesus is getting hit and spat on inside. Mark now turns our attention to what is taking place outside in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. You recall that Peter was there as we ended last time. He's warming himself at the fire there in the courtyard. And so verse 66 of Mark chapter 14. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And then the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. And so here we saw that Peter, the one who had vowed, to not deny the Lord. Lord, I'll never deny you, even though all these other guys will. Peter was so quick to point out that the other disciples would all run away and flee, but not me, Lord. You're wrong about me. I'm going to go to the garden. I'm going to stand by you, and I'll die with you if I have to. But when they went to the garden, what, what happened? It was Peter that was sleeping. When the Lord said, Peter, watch and pray, and Jesus comes back, and Peter had been sleeping three times. And, and Jesus said to him, Simon, that was Peter's old name, Simon, which means unstable, which means shifting. Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? And I wonder if Peter heard Jesus say that. Simon, couldn't you watch? Couldn't you watch? I'm sure that he did. You're calling me Simon? Because you see, it was up there at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus made that confession that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And as Peter made that confession, Oh, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and now your name is going to be Petros, or that is Peter, little stone. You're calling me Simon, unstable? I'm going to show you, Lord, that I'm still solid. I'm still a rock, that I'll show you that I'm still with you. And so when they came to rest Jesus, Peter reacts out of the flesh, and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, and then him and all the disciples run. They, they run away, just as Jesus said. But then Peter, he's not quite through. He, he's trying to get his courage together. And he follows Jesus from a distance, as we read in verse 54. And he comes into the courtyard of the high priest, and he's warming himself there at that fire. It's a chilly night. And he's with the very guards that had arrested Jesus. And that in itself, when you think about it, was a brave thing for him to do. Because Peter, in a sense, was putting himself in danger. And I think that it was the pride of Peter's heart that brought him that far. He was so determined not to let the Lord down. He was so determined to show that Jesus was wrong when he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Simon, couldn't you watch and pray with me? But now that he's there, he's there in the midst of the enemies of Jesus. And Peter is there at that fire, and, and fear begins to grip his heart. His courage begins to melt. It's interesting. The synoptic gospels tell us that Peter was sitting at the fire. John's gospel tells us that he was standing at the fire. Which was it? Was he sitting? Was he standing? He was doing both. He's uneasy. He's restless. He's sitting for a minute, and then he's standing up. He's sitting for a little bit, and then he's standing up. He's nervous. He's anxious. He's, he's walking around. He's very much full of fear. And so Peter here, in that courtyard, 
Jesus had said to him in the garden that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How is that Peter failed so miserably? Well, first of all, for you who like to jot down notes, and we talked a little bit about this last time, Peter was trusting in himself. He was trusting in himself. Be careful that you don't trust in your self-confidence. The scripture says, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Beware of the boasting in yourself and in your strength and in your own confidence. Trust in the Lord. Peter was trusting in himself. The second reason I believed for his failure was that he was sleeping when he should have been praying. And while he was sleeping, the enemies of Jesus were coming to get him. And as we discussed last week, is that the scriptures tell us that we're to be paying attention, take heed, that you watch, be sober, be vigilant, because you see, if you are one that you're sleeping spiritually, that you're not paying attention, the enemy is going to be plotting. And the enemy is going to see that as an opportunity to come against you and, and to try to come and bind you up somehow, some way, because you're not paying attention. And that's why it would be later on, that years later, that Peter would write in his epistle, you watch, you be sober, you be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. We need to be paying attention. Jesus had taught his disciples men ought to always pray, not faint. And how often when we face difficult situations, we faint instead of pray. And, and I get people that come and see me, and I'm glad that they see me when they're going through difficult times and hardships. And they say, Pastor Jeff, I need help. I'm in this difficulty. I'm in this pickle. I'm going through this hard time. I need to do something. And I will ask them, have you searched God's word? Have you really prayed about it? Well, no, I really haven't, but I've got to do something. And I say, okay, let's, let's look at God's word. And let's pray together. And as you do that, searching the word of God for wisdom, as you pray, you're going to find strength. And Jesus, who was in such distress, as we saw last week, he says, my soul is in agony. Even unto death, he would admit to his disciples. Sweating great drops of blood. But he would pray. And when they came to arrest him, he said, rise up for my betrayers at hand. And I want to remind you again at this time in our study that he was able to rise up because first he had knelt down in prayer. And if you are one that as you kneel down in prayer to the Lord and seek his word, you're going to find strength. Know this, that the place of prayer is the place of power and safety. And for you who desire to be the man or woman of God that the Lord wants you to be, we are told to be strong and of good courage. That comes as we search his word and as we are men and women of prayer. The third reason for his failure was because he was at the enemy's fires, warming himself on that night. And the moment that you seek to find comfort and warmth at the fire of the enemy, you are placing yourself in real jeopardy. You see, Peter wasn't just cold physically. He was chilled and cold in his heart and in his soul. And if we find ourselves in that way, that we're just kind of cold and, and, and towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. The enemy's going to be right there saying, come over here, warm yourself over here. I got something for you. There are certain places, listen, that as a child of God, that we have no business being there. And when you find yourself at the enemy's fires, warming yourself there, maybe it's the old hangouts and going about the old ways and stuff, you can be sure that you're headed for defeat, that you're headed for great sorrow, and you can be sure that you're going to get burnt. 
The fourth reason, as we talked about last time again, Peter is following the Lord from a distance, as I've made reference again to verse 54. You can't do that. You've got to stick close to him. You can't be a long-distance Christian. And all these reasons are leading to Peter's denying the Lord. Peter's defenses are down. He's warming himself at the enemy's fires. A young girl says, hey, you are one that was with Jesus of Nazareth, weren't you? And I'm sure that Peter, that he isn't even looking at her. He's just looking straight into that fire. He's probably looking away from her. I don't know what you're talking about. And he gets up and he heads towards the porch to get away and, and to get away from the crowds and from this girl and to be less visible. But this young girl who's the servant of, of the priest here follows him and keeps pursuing the subject. And I imagine she's gathering people around her and saying, hey, guys, come over here. You've got to see this. This is one of those guys that's with Jesus. She keeps pursuing the subject. He's becoming very anxious and a lot of discomfort that is with Peter at this time. And she is there pointing to the people standing around. Hey, this man is one of them. And Peter denies it then again a second time. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And she kept pursuing him. And as she heard him, she said in verse 70, you're one of those Galileans because your speech shows it. I believe that the King James tells us that she said your speech betrays you. We know that we can tell where a person is from, what part of the country they're from, from their accent, whether they're from the South or whether they're from New England states or even from the Midwest, what even what part of the world they're from. If they're from England or from Australia, they all have different accents, and we can tell where a person is at. And so here is Peter's accent. The Galileans apparently had this accent to where people recognize that's where they were from, from the northern part of the country. And here he is as he's denying the Lord. Soon he's going to be swearing, he's going to be cursing, and his accent gave him away. Your speech shows where you're at and where you're from. As she says to him, your speech shows it. You're a Galilean. Your speech will betray you. So the question that I want to ask all of us this morning is this. How's your speech been? Jesus said, what comes out of your mouth, that's what defiles a man. So how's your speech? What comes out of your mouth will reveal what's in your heart. So if you're at the job and you're around the boys and they say, hey, aren't you one of those religious people? Aren't you one of those? You go to church. You even go to church on Wednesday night. Are you one of those? Do you say, oh, not, not me. I don't know what you're talking about. I only go because my wife wants me to go. That's why. Or I take my kids to youth group, but hey, you know, hey, did you hear about the one? And How's your speech? Are you one that... I hope and pray that you express your commitment to the Lord and how you enjoy walking and talking with the Lord and you're thankful for all He has done for you. But I also want to bring it home a little bit closer to us as well. How's your speech when husband you talk to your wife? When wife when you're talking to your husband or parents you're talking to your children? When you're talking to your brothers and sisters in the Lord, how's your speech? Is it seasoned with grace? Is it edifying? Is it uplifting? Is it encouraging? Is it the words that we say? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Or is it something that we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that my speech hasn't been edifying. It hasn't been uplifting. Lord, I've been complaining and murmuring. And you said in the book of Philippians, do all things without murmuring and complaining. I, I, I've been 
speaking things and saying things that haven't shown respect and love to my spouse. I've been really coming down hard on the kids and tearing them down, provoking them to anger. It's very important the words that we speak, what the Lord has to say in the scriptures concerning that. So how's our speech then? And I think that we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, how has my speech been? Because it really reveals where your heart is at. So here you're a Galilean. Your speech shows it in verse 71. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. So Peter begins to curse and swear. Fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, they were known for their cursing and swearing. And the reason that they would is because their nets would get all tangled up and snagged up and they would just begin to curse and swear and it would be very frustrating for them. And guys, you know how it is. You like to fish. You get all tangled up and frustrated. And when you get your line tangled up, took Barbara up Friday, do some fishing. It's going great. And then all of a sudden just tangled up, snagged up. Now I assure you I wasn't cussing. She'll tell you the truth on that. But it is frustrating. It can get frustrating. And the fishermen up there, they would get frustrated. And they were known for their swearing. And, and here is Peter, though, as he begins to curse and swear because he's all tangled up. He's all snagged up in his heart. He begins to deny and curse and swear the one whom he loves. And all of a sudden the rooster cried out the second time. It began to crow. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus to him, that when the rooster crows twice, you would have denied me three times, Peter. Peter, earlier that night, was so overconfident, saying, I'll never deny you. Lord, I'll die with you. He was as proud as a rooster. You can count on me, Lord. And now he hears the rooster crow twice, denying the Lord, cursing and swearing. Meantime, on the inside, Jesus is getting spit on and beaten, and Peter's heart is broken because he denied and swore, and he cursed, and the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said, and Peter wept. And it's a very strong and very dramatic word that is used here for wept. It wasn't that he just shed a few tears. It wasn't that he was just a little bit crying and upset, but he literally was in agony, in tears. He's sobbing for from the most inner depths of his being. I believe that he's doubled over. He's weeping so hard. And as far as he is concerned, his relationship was completely and permanently severed with Jesus as far as he's concerned. As far as Peter's concerned, he's sinned away the day of grace. You've got to remember at this point, Peter doesn't know the rest of the story like we do. He doesn't know about John chapter 21. That after the resurrection of Jesus, we read that the Lord would meet Peter up there in the Galilee region. And there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus would kindly and graciously forgive Peter and restore Peter and commission him to ministry. But here at this point, Peter thought that his friendship, his relationship with the Lord is severed forever, and he weeps bitterly. But can I just point out a couple things before we leave this chapter, chapter 14, and move into chapter 15? Peter hears the crow of the rooster. Interesting that if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 61, we know that Luke tells us that as Peter is saying, blankety blank, I don't know the man, that all of a sudden the doors of Caiaphas' house suddenly swings open. 
and Jesus is led out into the courtyard where Peter was, and it says that Jesus looked at Peter. Jesus, with his face being bloodied and bruised, looked at Peter, who is cursing and swearing. And I believe that as Jesus looked at Peter, that Peter looked right into his eyes. Yes, his face was swollen and bruised and bloodied, but he could look into the eyes of the Lord. And I don't believe that it was a look in Jesus' eyes of condemnation and anger. I think it was a look of love. And I think that's what broke Peter. That's what caused Peter to weep so bitterly. Because Peter looked into those loving eyes of the Lord who was about to be crucified for his sins. And we will see in Mark chapter 16 that when Jesus resurrects, that the angel of the tomb told Mary, go and tell the disciples and Peter, especially Peter, specifically Peter, you go and tell him that I am alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are told by Paul that Jesus after he resurrects, sought out Peter before the rest of the disciples. And again, we know that well-familiar chapter of John chapter 21 where we have the whole chapter recorded on how the Lord restores Peter to ministry. And it would be not many days later that Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach and 3,000 got saved on that day. Acts chapter 2, we know the chapter. And early church historians tell us that when Peter would stand up and preach in his early days of ministry, that there would be those who would be in the crowds and they would mock Peter because they knew the story of him denying the Lord. And you know how they mocked him? By making the sound of the rooster. By making the sound of the rooster. But Peter kept preaching and he kept teaching and he kept ministering. And the Lord used Peter big time, as you read in the book of Acts. Maybe somebody is here this morning. And maybe you've realized that I've been sleeping when I should have been praying. I followed the Lord from a distance. I've warmed myself at the enemy's fire. I have said to people, I don't know him. I have ignored the word. I've drifted away. Maybe in your heart you're weeping. But know this, that Jesus looks at you. He looks into your heart this morning. Not in anger or condemnation, but in love. And he reminds you that I died for you. That I paid the price and I love you. That's why I went to the cross. And there is forgiveness and restoration. And if you will just come to him and call upon him. Stop relying on your own strength. Stop doing things out of the flesh. Don't be at the enemy's fire. Don't follow from a long distance. It won't work. And that's what Mark shows us here in this chapter. Peter was so sure of himself, but he failed miserably, and he made a mess of things. And the same thing will happen to us if we do those things that we've been discussing. And so Jesus, with those loving eyes, says to you and to me, return to me and come to me and watch what I can do with the mess that you've made. And that's what he did with Peter. He was able to use Peter. He wasn't through with him, and he's not through with you. He's not through with you. And we come to the cross of Calvary where we realize that he died for my sins. He, he paid the price for me. And as we receive him in our hearts, we continue then to walk with him and know that there's forgiveness even today for those who belong to him. 
and you just surrender to him and you watch what he does with your life, how he will turn it for, around for his glory. And you follow close to the Lord. You learn of him. You don't trust in yourself, but you trust in him. And you don't walk according to the world, but you walk in his love and you continue abiding in him and fellowshipping with him. And he is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, as Jude tells us. Commit your life to him. And he will keep you. He will keep you. And he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And there will be those that will come along in your life once in a while and they'll start crowing in your ear. But you keep going. Because he makes all things new and his mercies are new every morning. It would be Paul that would write to the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter 3, forgetting those things which are behind. Paul's talking about how he, how he had killed the Christians and persecuted the church and all the religiousness that, that he was a part of. And he said, I gave that all up. And I forget about those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you stay close to the Lord. You live in his love. Otherwise, there's going to be weeping in your life. And Peter found that out to be so. But Peter also would then experience the love of the Lord, and the Lord wasn't through with him. If you're here this morning, and maybe you say, I have a Peter-like tendency, come back to the Lord. Receive his forgiveness, repent, and stay close to him and walk with him. And allow him to just forgive and restore and do work that he wants to do in your life. So chapter 15, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So the gathering of the elders and the scribes and the whole council is the official daylight trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The, the night before, in chapter 14, as we saw last week, that was an illegal trial because the Sanhedrin council was not supposed to be meeting at night. They were supposed to meet during the daytime. And so order, in order to justify their actions, they hold a meeting in the daytime. So immediately in the morning, as soon as it's light, they gather together to hold this meeting. And so they consult together because they knew that the charge on which they had condemned Jesus would never stand before the Roman governor. They had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. They said he claimed to be God, so that was worthy of death according to the religious leaders. But the Romans, they wouldn't pay any attention to those charges. They would say, and Pilate would say, so what? Big deal. We Romans, we have many gods. So the religious leaders, if they're going to bring Jesus to Pilate, they said, hey, he claims to be king of the Jews. Now that was a different story because there could only be one king and that was Caesar. So here is Pilate. He's Caesar's representative. Pilate was the sixth Roman governor in that region and Pilate was at that time, politically, he's walking on thin ice as far as Rome was concerned, as far as Caesar was concerned. Why was he? Because you see, Pilate had made some very foolish decisions that had caused some problems in that area. Number one, what he did was, is according to historians, that the soldiers were headquarters in Caesarea, that seacoast city, that was the Roman capital of that area, about 50 miles from Jerusalem. So Pilate has an idea. I'm going to take the headquarters of the, the Roman uh, military and soldiers of that area, and I'm going to move it to Jerusalem. So all these soldiers were there that he stationed on the Temple Mount, and they had their shields with the image of Caesar on those shields. And the Jews didn't like that. 
this is blasphemy, this is idolatry, bringing this up on a religious site, so a riot broke out. So it was Rome that had to tell Pilate, you put the headquarters back in Caesarea. Also, what Pilate did shortly after that is he wanted to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem, so he took the money out of the temple treasury. So it caused another riot. So in those two riots that broken out, Roman soldiers had to come in, stop the rebellion, blood was spilled. So the message came from Rome that, you know what, one more outburst here, Pilate, and you're through, you're out. And so get it together. So Pilate really is feeling the pressure here from Rome. Secular history tells us that he was a cruel man, he was fairly ruthless, completely insensitive to the moral feelings of others, and he didn't like dealing with the Jews. And the religious leaders thought, well, we can work this to our advantage. Surely Pilate, who's insensitive to others, will put Jesus to death. And if Pilate executes him, then we'll distance ourselves from the political fallout. Plus, the Jews could no longer put somebody, you know, in, under capital punishment. That had been taken away from the Romans. So they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. As Jesus was silent, why did Pilate marvel? I think because as a governor, he had seen so many men grovel and beg for their lives before him. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you said. And what he is saying in that response is, this is what you're saying about me. You have said so. We know from John chapter 18 that Jesus went on to say that my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Jesus was making it very clear to Pilate that his kingship is no threat to Rome whatsoever. And Pilate understood it in a way that would relieve any fear, you know, concerning Pilate, that he was trying to bring some kind of revolution or a rebellion against Rome. He was not challenging the authority of Rome. So verse 3, the chief priests, they realize, uh-oh, our case is starting to fall apart here. So in their anger, Mark tells us here, they begin to accuse him of many things. They start to throw out all kinds of accusations. They think, wow, you know what? We've got to do this. This man is deserving of death. And Pilate, as we're going to see in verse 10, knew that the chief priests were full of envy. Pilate, who was a cruel man, didn't always exercise the best judgment when dealing with the Jews, but he wasn't ignorant. And he saw through those religious leaders. He knew what their real motive was. He saw through the empty charges and understood what the priests were trying to do. They were envious, they were jealous. And the reason that they were jealous and envious about Jesus is because the religious leaders were losing their power and authority with the people. Mark chapter 12, it was the common people that heard Jesus gladly. It was before this that the religious leaders had at one time sent the temple soldiers to go and arrest Jesus, and they came back, as John tells us. And they didn't have Jesus, and the religious leaders are upset, saying, why didn't you bring him here? And they said, never before has a man spoke like this man speaks. They marveled at his words. Jesus was one, as we have seen, taught with real authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. He was on that hillside in Galilee and said, Your righteousness must, must exceed, describes in the Pharisees. 
The religious leaders were always trying to trap Jesus with his own words, but they could never trap him or snare him. And that made them angry and envious. And with all these additional charges that the priests were bringing up, Jesus remained absolutely silent. And Pilate was amazed at this. Pilate tried to get him the answer, but Jesus still answered nothing. In verse 6, Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. So between verses 5 and 6, we know that Jesus, after he comes to Pilate, he would then go to Herod the Tetrarch who was the one who ruled up in that northern area of Israel up in the Galilee region so when Pilate finds out that hey you're a Galilean you need to go to Herod he's in town he'll take care of it and Herod we know wanted to see Jesus matter of fact we saw earlier in Mark's gospel that Herod he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist returned from the grave resurrected from the grave Herod who had John the Baptist killed Hey, as Jesus came before Herod, do a miracle for me is what Herod wanted him to do. And Jesus spoke absolutely nothing to him. So Herod mocked him, sent him back to Pilate. I can just picture Pilate looking out the window and all of a sudden this contingency of soldiers come marching up with Jesus in the middle all bound up and Pilate's thinking, oh no, he's back. Now was it I'm going to do? Pilate knew that he was an innocent man. We know from the gospel narratives that he had declared even publicly that I find no fault in this man. Pilate knows that he now has a sensitive political situation on his hands that could blow up. And he's no friend of the Jews. He could see through their manipulation. He knows that Jesus was handed over because of envy and jealousy. This made Pilate try to find a way to, to free Jesus even more. And he's indecisive. We know that Matthew tells us that his wife is sending him messages. Listen, I've had dreams have nothing to do with this man, Jesus. Let him go. So Pilate believes, you know, what do I do? What do I do here? I got a political situation. A whole city is in a, going to be in an uproar as Passover. So he believes that he's found a way to do what is right. He thinks that Jesus can escape death if he releases him according to the custom of releasing a prisoner every Passover season. He's thinking that the crowd will sympathize with Jesus. That's my way out. And so there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels they had committed murder in the rebellion. Barabbas, interesting, his name means son of the father. Barabbas is one who's a murderer and a, a thief. So who do you choose? Barabbas, son of the father, or Jesus, the true son of the father? And the multitude in verse 8, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered him, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. He delivered Jesus as after he had been scourged, after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, why did the crowd choose Barabbas, this murderer? We know from Mark's gospel here that the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they would release Barabbas. But I think it's more than that. It could be that it seems that the people were disappointed with Jesus. 
Because it was a few days earlier as the crowds, a great multitude, as we read in Mark's Gospel, as Jesus came into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week in his triumphal entry, they cried out to him, that messianic psalm, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I imagine that the city was filled with people that had been healed by Jesus, that had been blessed by him, certainly. And I think that there was probably some people in the crowd here. And there was the crowds of release Jesus of Nazareth, but they were drowned out with the cries of we want Barabbas. Release him, crucify Jesus. We will not have this man rule over us. We have but one king, and that is Caesar. Because as they cried out a few days previously, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were looking for the Messiah to free them from the yoke and the bondage of Rome. But when they saw that Jesus wasn't going to do that, that he had a different agenda than a national one, than a political one, they were looking for the Messiah to save them free from the dreaded Romans is what they were looking for and when they realized that he wasn't going to do that that he seems to be standing helpless before the Roman governor in an apparent unwillingness or inability to make any defense and he's been talking about that we need to pick up our cross and follow after him he's been talking about that if you want to be great in the kingdom you must be the servant of all what do you mean what do you mean you're not going to do anything you're not going to try to get out of this or anything against those Romans. And all of a sudden their loyalty to him collapsed. And in anger and in disappointment, they turned and chose Barabbas, the son of the father. The one who is a murderer and a thief rather than Jesus, the true son of the father. They said crucify Jesus. But we know that Jesus had to die on the cross because he knew that there was a greater bondage than Rome could ever put on anyone. The bondage of sin. And he came not to free them from Rome, but from sin. And when you and I are free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin, the, the, the power of sin in our lives, know this, that Rome can't hurt you. And I believe that Jesus carried that cross that was made for Barabbas. So Pilate, who was afraid of Jesus, he was afraid of the crowds, he's indecisive, he's asking the crowds for advice here. He's, he's saying, what do I do and who do you want? He has Jesus scourged. And I often wondered why Pilate would order this scourging, knowing that he was going to be crucified. I think that it was Pilate's last attempt to spare Jesus. He hoped by scourging Jesus that it win, would win the sympathy of the crowd. And we know that from John's gospel, that after he was scourged, that Pilate brought him back to the crowd and he said, look at him, look at him, behold the man, look what has happened to him. But it failed. And they stirred up the crowd once again, the chief priests, and they kept crying out, crucify him. We're through with him. I want to end with this and we'll be done. When you look at Jesus, when you look at our Lord, do we say, save my material, physical, political agenda? And if you don't, forget you? Or do we realize that we have the greatest freedom and that is the freedom from sin? The Lord, that you have come and that you have set me free from the greatest bondage could ever put it, be put on any man, any woman. That is the bondage of sin. The greatest question of all time is what are you going to do with Jesus, the one who is called Christ? I think that most of us in this room, that we've said you are the Christ, that you're the son of the living God, that you died for me, Lord. But what is our attitude towards him? 
because everyone will stand open and naked before him. And what my prayer is that, Lord, that more than you're just a celestial Santa Claus that gives me what I want, or, or Lord, that <coughs> here's my agenda, here's, here's my you know, motives, here's my desires, and you better do what I want you to do or forget you. I don't think that would be any of our hearts. But Lord, thank you as I look at you in your eyes of love for dying for me and giving me eternal life and relationship with the Father that now we are called the sons and daughters of the living God. We belong to another kingdom. And as we just follow after him, he'll take care of all those other things. But Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I trust you, I rest in your love. You've given me the very best, your son. And you're going to work all things for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful text that we look at, the cross that Jesus is headed to. And Father, I thank you that we can gain so much from what we've read as we learn from Peter at this point those things that will distance us from the Lord. And Father, but we see amazingly your love that remains. Father, I pray this morning, and if there's anyone that's out in the coffee shop or anybody that may be in the sanctuary, or if anyone is listening on the radio to this message, that you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, that the greatest need any man or any woman is forgiveness of sin. And it only comes through a surrendered heart to him. Realizing that you have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus said that we are to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, to turn to him, that all manner of sin is forgiven. 